welcome once again to Renoites. It's the podcast where I talk to folks from Reno. My name is Connor McQuivy. I am your host. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today on the podcast, I'm going to be talking with Holly Wellborn. Holly is the policy director for the ACLU of Nevada. Before we jump into the interview, a couple quick reminders. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you have not left me a review yet, I would really appreciate you doing that. It helps people find us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you listen to. I really appreciate your reviews and letting people know about the podcast. We're brand new, so the more you spread the word, the more people will be able to listen to us, and I hope that we can get these stories and interviews out to a large audience in town. Secondly, send me an email. If you have any guest suggestions, people you'd like to hear on the show, you can reach me at Connor, that's C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. So without any further delay, please welcome this week's guest, Holly Wellborn. Welcome to the podcast, Holly. I'm so excited to talk to you. This is my first episode with someone that I know already. So we have worked together on the election protection project on this last election, and I've known you for a long time. So I'm really excited to learn about the ACLU. So welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to be here, Connor, and congratulations on this new venture. Looking forward to seeing it really take off. Yeah, it's been a ton of fun so far. I've got to talk to some really great people, and I'm excited to talk to you today because I don't know that much about the ACLU. I have probably a little more knowledge about it because I've worked with the ACLU, but I think most people don't necessarily know all of the things that the ACLU does. So my understanding, and I think what a lot of people think of as the ACLU, it's obviously it's the American Civil Liberties Union. So it's a civil rights, civil liberties organization. And I think it tends to get associated with Democrats and progressives more often, but I was doing some research and it seems like the ACLU has been on kind of both sides of a lot of issues, not necessarily always aligned with Democrats on the left. So a defending free speech of, you know, conservative speakers like Rush Limbaugh and defending things like the the Confederate flag, like the right to fly the Confederate flag if you want to. That's a free speech issue. And ACLU is very big on free speech. So can you start by just giving us some background about what you do for the ACLU. So you're the policy director of ACLU Nevada. So you can tell us what that means. And then just kind of what the ACLU is, what the the goals are of the ACLU and the kind of views that you have as an organization on, on some of these issues. Thanks, Connor. I think that's a really perfect way to start this discussion, talking about what the ACLU sort of isn't. And we are not a democratic organization. We're not even a leftist organization. We are a nonpartisan civil rights and civil liberties advocacy organization that promotes civil liberties through public education, through public policy and advocacy, and through litigation. We are most well known for our um, litigation efforts nationally. We've been at the forefront of pretty much every major Supreme Court decision in some way, including you know the Korematsu decision, Brown versus Board of Education, Roe versus Wade. We may not have been lead counsel on a lot of those cases, but we were definitely part of the you know working group of players who advanced those to the Supreme Court through our national organization. And what the ACLU of Nevada is, is it's an affiliate of the ACLU National. We have been in existence since 1966 here in Nevada. It was actually founded here in Reno by a group of um, professors and, uh, you know, one attorney who lived in the Reno area thought that they really needed to expand a chapter of the ACLU here in the state. And that's where, you know, we grew and we developed. And over time, we through a, a staff. Um, the staff has fluctuated anywhere from, you know, two or three people to, you know, 13 people. Right now we have 12 people on staff and I'm the policy director. And so what I do, I don't do a lot of, of litigation, but I do the public policy and advanced civil liberties in um, the Nevada legislature through county government, really where any government body meets, I am there to monitor their agenda and make sure that they are not violating people's rights or to ask the government to, you know, pass policies that promote liberty and freedom for Nevadans. Gotcha. So what kind of issues does the ACLU generally deal with? So I talked a little bit about free speech issues, but there's a whole 
a whole range of issues. Like there's basically nothing that's outside of the realm of civil rights and civil liberties in some way. So can you talk a little bit about the the areas that ACLU has tended to focus on generally? Absolutely. Our national organization has about 20 different projects. We have the Women's Rights Project, Reproductive Health Project, Criminal Law Reform, Capital Punishment, um, Abolition Project, etc. A full wide range of different issues that we work on. We, here in Nevada, we've focused a lot on, um, you know, some of those umbrella issues that are supported by our national office would include voting rights. We do a lot of criminal justice reform. Um, we are working on a bill to hopefully abolish the death penalty here in Nevada. So that is, you know, a, a large, you know, amount of the work in a lot of our efforts during this legislative session. But at some point, really any civil liberties issue, we also have a disability advocacy and disability rights project at our national organization. So we do some of that work in state, any right that a person could be, could face. I mean, in a lot of these rights we do here in Nevada, we do a lot of focus and emphasis on prisons because that is an area where people um, are often forgot about. There are people who are incarcerated are often not the first people that our lawmakers are out trying to protect. They have made their way to prison, so there's not a whole lot of sympathy from the public for incarcerated individuals. So we are there to support their rights and ensure that they receive humane treatment and really to monitor the criminal justice system from start to finish, the front end all the way to reentry. Got it. I think that like you mentioned, one of the challenges for incarcerated people is that there is this this stigma. And you said they they get left behind, they get forgotten about a lot when our civil rights, our freedoms should apply no matter what. In my opinion, even if you have committed a crime, even if you've been convicted of a crime, even if you are incarcerated, that doesn't mean that you are any less of a person or any less of a citizen or should have, you know, obviously there are restrictions to your freedom when you are incarcerated, but your freedom to move around, let's say. But I don't know that that necessarily should extend to curtailing of all of your various civil rights. So can you talk a little bit about some of the the issues that incarcerated people face in terms of their civil liberties being threatened or, or limited in a way that is not fair or not right? Some of the issues that they face that maybe people don't consider that much? Yeah, absolutely. I think it starts by looking at the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. We are really hearing a lot about that in a popular culture right now. Ava DuVernay, very popular Black director, she had a documentary entitled 13th that drew attention to what it actually says. I mean, it says that, you know, the 13th Amendment had ended slavery, but it actually didn't. 13th Amendment created the incarceral system of slavery and the the system that we know in the United States today, and Nevada prisons are not immune from that. We have individuals who, who are living in the shadows. The ACLU has had to fight for transparency in the way that prisons are run through a variety of litigation, both at the federal level and here in the state of Nevada. We've had had to fight for women who are being shackled while pregnant and giving birth and um, had serious physical injuries as a result of that. Prison medical care continues to be a fight for our organization. We have transgender inmates currently who are unable to access the full spectrum of care that they would otherwise be constitutionally entitled to if they were not currently behind bars. And when it comes to prison labor, we don't pay really any significant amount of money for an individual to work for either prison industries or in the forest service fighting fires engaged in incredibly dangerous work that's hazardous to your health, we're paying on average about a dollar an hour, give or take 50 cents for that labor. So that is literally slave labor occurring in the state of Nevada. And I'm, um, there's a few policies that are looked at um, aiming to end that practice and paying individuals minimum wage this legislative session. Yeah, that's what I've heard. How are those how are those discussions or, or how are things moving along with the bill that's currently in the Nevada legislature? I heard that it has bipartisan support and it seems like the minimum wage is possibly going to be extended to incarcerated people. Do you think that's likely or, or what's the status on that? 
Yeah, it was um, it was a welcome surprise. It was a very it was one of the best hearings, I think, of the 2021 legislative session. It really had the support of both Republicans and Democrats during that hearing. The Nevada Department of Corrections did not place a fiscal note on the bill, which can uh, you know really stall stall legislation from moving through and how, and you know the bill could end up in the finance committee and people are trying to fight to get it out of there but because there wasn't a fiscal note for um you know whatever reason there really does seem to be a clear path to victory for this bill i mean it's early right now but there's definitely strong support from both parties to move the bill forward and move it through so i mean we're hoping that we can see it on um work session which is where they go and they vote on uh, legislation we're hoping to see it on work session uh, very soon. And, you know, I think that a lot of people have rallied around this, but another key component and another exciting piece of legislation is an actual constitutional change in the Nevada constitution. And that bill will be heard this week. It's a um, AJR 10, I believe, sponsored by Howard Watts, which would actually take that language out of the, the constitution. So that's incredibly exciting too. For people who might argue that people incarcerated don't need money or they, why should they have a minimum wage? What do you say to people who just don't understand why work when you're incarcerated should be treated the same way as work if you're not incarcerated? I mean, the most obvious thing for me is at some point you won't be incarcerated anymore. And if you come out of jail with zero dollars in your pocket, you're much more likely to end up back in jail. But if you're allowed to work and develop a skill and save money, that seems like a really smart thing for the long term. But for people that generally have this idea maybe of, oh, if you've committed a crime, why should you be given a job? Why should you be given the same kind of money that I'm making out here? What do you what do you say to those people? How do you how do you defend, you know, spending more? It's obviously more expensive to to pay people incarcerated the minimum wage. What would you say to people who just don't really understand why someone in jail should get the same kind of opportunities that we get outside of jail? The majority of people who are currently serving a sentence in the Nevada Department of Corrections will be released to the community. We talk about this in the context of pretty much every prison reform effort that we advance through the legislature or elsewhere, that we have to treat people as though they will re-enter society. And whether we see that as benefiting the offender or benefiting public safety, which it does, we are really understanding that now that by continuously feeding a person back and forth and, and cycling them through the criminal justice system over and over again, we're impacting community health and community safety and costing the state, you know, millions of dollars every year by having that continuous cycle and people re-entering the um, prison system. So if, you know, we're, we're concerned, if we're not concerned, if you're not thinking about it from the perspective of, you know, what's humane and right for an individual and you're thinking about it through a different lens of, you know, why do we have to do this? It is about protecting the community. If we provide a person dignity throughout this process, get some training, especially when we're talking about the forestry service. Right now we have those mostly men, those individuals who are out, you know, fighting wildfires, that that is who's fighting our wildfires for, for no money is incarcerated individuals. And then they go through that process. They get this uh, firefighting training and they're not able to utilize that skill once they leave the NDOC because they're a prohibited person. They're not able to, to be firefighters like everyone else because they have that, that felony. So that's another um, really amazing thing that Senator Neal's bill does is it provides that if you worked for the forestry service and you fought fires during your time while incarcerated, you can become a firefighter upon release. And what that is going to do is it's going to be an incredibly good income. It's a job prospect that has, you know, upward trajectory. So that way your circumstances will be different and you're not going to end up in the same place that you were. Yeah, I think that fits with the general view of the ACLU that prison should be intended towards rehabilitation. I tend to have the same view that I don't really like the idea of punishment as a strategy to shape 
how people act and and how our society works. Generally, I just don't think punishment is as effective as rehabilitation and training and taking that kind of view. So is that generally the ACLU's view in general, that rehabilitation should be the purpose of our criminal justice system rather than punishment or retribution? It is. It absolutely is. The ACLU has not formally signed on to any, quote, abolition efforts. So there's a movement to, you know, abolish prisons. It, the, saying it in those terms tends to, you know, get an emotional reaction, but it's not, you know, let's literally not respond to criminal activity. That's not what abolish means. It means let's invest in, in the front end, in families. Let's invest and re, reimagine and rethink how we approach the criminal justice system as a whole. And we're close to that. We're, we're, we're on the, you know, the track of, you know, divest and reinvest when it comes to policing. But definitely right now our focus is to focus on the word corrections. That is what the Department of Corrections is intended to do. The Nevada Department of Corrections, under the last director, Director James Zarenda, they changed their mission statement for the better before it was strictly about community safety and protecting people from harmful individuals. But really, we're seeing that a lot of people who are incarcerated, they may have done one bad thing, but we have to examine whether or not we're holding people responsible indefinitely for the rest of their lives for the worst thing that they had done in their lives. Are we unnecessarily judging people by that one terrible thing that they did instead of the totality of who they are as an individual? And can we tap into that totality of who they are as an individual to invest in their lives, to make their lives better, which has the impact of making our community safer? Does that also tie in with the, like, banning the box, the legislation to stop employers from basically wholesale blocking people who've been convicted of a crime? And is that a big part of the getting back into the community is treating people who are incarcerated as people who can still go on to offer a lot to our communities and valuable members of, you know, our city? Absolutely it is. And I think when we look at things like voting, you got to work with us a little bit on on voting rights this past election cycle. One component of that and one issue that we've been working on as, as an organization is restoration of the right to vote in addition to ban the box legislation. Nevada is one of the few states that allows people who are not currently incarcerated to vote. You can vote through any method. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to go to a court or a judge in order to get your right to vote back. You can, you know, register to vote and cast your ballot. That has enormous impact on dignity, on investment in your community, on following issues and understanding how the system of, you know, incarceration impacted your life and how it's policy choices that have led to why a person, you know, often it's policy choices that have led to why many people end up incarcerated. And so you find that people who get their right to vote, they have the tendency to want to engage more civic, um, civically. So that's had an astronomical impact on outcomes for people when they leave the prison system, in addition to the ability to get a job. I think our next steps, too, are to ensure that we get some occupational licensing reform that, um, you know, we take a look at building different skill sets and building upon the ban the box legislation, because what that does is it it forces an employer to to wait. You can still be denied for having a felony. So we have to do we have to change that law and continue to expand upon that law. But what it does is, you know, it gets you through a process to where they will consider you and start thinking about other factors that you bring to the table, other skills that you bring to the table, rather than just throwing your application out because you just happen to check the box that you have a felony when there's so much more about you that you can bring to this job. And again, it's about, you know, judging a person on the worst thing that they did in their lives rather than what they've done to correct that. There's been a lot of news recently about about sentencing and about people having their sentences longer because of COVID and this kind of treatment of people that are currently incarcerated as a, you know, a second thought as far as the COVID thing. There's less emphasis on getting people incarcerated vaccinated 
I think, than in the general population. I'm not sure what the status is on that. So less focus on getting people vaccinated, less focus on getting people to trial if they're waiting for trial. So it seems that there's a lot of delays for people that are incarcerated to get what they need to get, both in terms of their health, to get through their sentence. And that seems to be a challenge that is not just specific to the COVID time, but what is going on in terms of making sure that the process doesn't leave people behind bars longer than they are supposed to be? Is there work around making sure that the system is still working as it's supposed to and and getting people through and people aren't being left behind or forgotten? Yeah, there is. There's there's a bill that I'll talk about in just one moment. But I, I think you really hit the nail on the head by talking about lack of access to basic human needs like medical care, adequate nutrition, exercise, all of those other things that those have always been an issue within the Nevada Department of Corrections. And we as the ACLU and other prison reform advocates, we knew at the outset that COVID in prisons, this was just going to be a hot spot for an outbreak that if there is an outbreak in Nevada prisons or a you know local detention center, that that is going to just have a compounding impact, not only on the people who are incarcerated within, but throughout our entire communities. At the outset of this pandemic, you know, we wrote letters, we warned the governor, we warned the Nevada Department of Corrections about how quickly this could spread in that type of setting, particularly when you're not giving people access to hand sanitizer. They did it at one, at one time and then apparently one person drank it and then they took hand sanitizer from everyone. So it was, you know, it's been a battle. It's been an incredibly exhausting year trying to get our state government to do something. And Nevada is an outlier. We are in the minority of states. Almost 32 other states have responded to the COVID-19 pandemic in incarceral settings by depopulating in some way, by decarcerating in some way, whether that's releasing medically fragile people, whether that is releasing, you know, older people of a certain age who don't pose a risk to the community based on whatever crime, you know, their underlying offenses. But Nevada didn't. And I I can't to this day explain to you why. And then, of course, we've had a huge outbreak. 52 incarcerated individuals have passed away. 33% of the incarcerated population had contracted COVID-19. And, you know, now it's, it's a nightmare. But another interesting thing that they did is they stopped programming. So one way that people could have responded to this is if the Department of Corrections and Parole and Probation had continued to move forward with, you know, release of individuals and compounding good time credit. So good time credit is an incredibly complex area on prison sentencing that we can use an entire show to discuss. But essentially, when you are engaged in a GED program, a vocational program, um, any kind of, you know, work program, or you're working regularly or engaged in something that you know keeps you busy within the DOC, you get what's called good time credit. That is all frozen. That's all been frozen throughout this entire period. So we know a number of families who had release dates for, or at least parole dates for around September, who have not been able to get those, get those dates. And so those are a big handful of people who could be released who are already termed out. They've done everything they need to do. They have families to go home to but it's just this unnecessary delay. And so what we have asked the legislature to do because the Department of Corrections has declined to do it is to you know, provide that during a state of emergency, people get to retain that time. They get that time back that they're losing through no fault of their own from not being able to engage in programming. Got it. How much of the effort is litigation versus public pressure versus lobbying. How do you get those things done as the ACLU of Nevada? As a rule of thumb, typically what I like to tell government officials is that if you're dealing with me as the policy director, then there might be a road forward that doesn't, you know, have to end in a courtroom or at a settlement table or, or whatever. We'll give a certain number of chances. And if we realize that, you know, there's no corrective action here. They haven't heeded a demand letter. They're not willing to work with us. And that's, you know, any government agency on any issue. Then we'll bring in our our legal team. 
who will who will do something. Your know, first step is usually a demand, bring it, you know, calling to their attention what's what's happening and why we think it's unlawful and what they need to do to change. And if that's not followed, then we start going down the route of litigation. So we do try to solve quite a few problems through the advocacy process. A, because there are some problems that can't be resolved in a courtroom. Things are incredibly terrible that occur, let's say, in the Nevada Department of Corrections. But we have some pretty terrifying case law that, you know, courts will accept quite a bit of abuse, what we would find as abuse toward people who are incarcerated. So, you know, we have to be very creative with those arguments. There's also this thing called the Prison Litigation Reform Act, which requires that an incarcerated person exhaust all administrative remedies. And so departments of corrections have, you know, set up all of these different loopholes and created all these new administrative remedies. So litigation can take a very, very long time. Whereas advocacy, you know, maybe we could figure it out within a few months or maybe a year rather than, you know, a, a two, three, or, or longer, you know, we've had cases that have been, you know, eight years in the making litigation process. So that's why we have those multiple arms. So when we get to that area of litigation, it's usually because something quite serious has occurred and we, we need to respond to it at that point. You mentioned the conditions are not great for a lot of incarcerated people. Can you talk a little bit about how Nevada does in, you know, the big picture compared to maybe other states or federal prisons and what incarcerated people have to deal with or what some of these conditions are? Is there excessive use of solitary confinement? Is there these kind of issues that affect people incarcerated in a really negative way, stuff that we might not realize is happening to people? There's a case in this jurisdiction, Ninth Ninth Circuit case law, that, you know, I think it's important to talk about the facts of it. So there's a, a gentleman, he, you know, gets an eye infection, it went on for weeks. He, you know, told the, the, the prison medical director that, you know, this eye infection was getting really bad. He ends up losing the eye. So they take the case to court. It ends up at the Ninth Circuit. And what the court says at that time is it's not cruel and unusual. The treatment of this particular man did not rise to the level of cruel and unusual punishment or neglect um, or negligence within um, the prison system because he had the other eye. So <laughs> listeners can't see side. me rolling my eyes at that. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's terrifying. So that's what we're dealing with. It's, it's this high threshold that you have to meet, you know, when clearly that man should never have lost his eye. That's the type of neglect that we see in our prison system. Things have in some manner gotten slightly better. But I mean, you have people who are waiting weeks to get just basic medical care. The COVID-19 pandemic has really shown that there was um, a point where incarcerated people were supposed to be first in line for vaccines, which would have been the right thing to do because they become such a hotspot for infection. And then, of course, they were taken off that list. It's my understanding that they're back on and there are incarcerated people who are now beginning to, to be vaccinated. I'd have to look to see what those numbers are, but we continue to monitor that. Again, this is something that's happening in the shadows. We're not always able to get in and see what's occurring inside, except for the you know complaints that we get. Also, solitary confinement. At one time, Nevada was one of the worst states in the country for use of solitary. And it's just in the last three or four years that the department has shifted their use. I mean, we work with people who spent 30 years in solitary confinement. And what that means is that you do not have more than one hour of out of cell time per day and sometimes less. This is a project, you know, that we had been working on. We had a, an, an uptick of um, complaints from incarcerated people who had said that they were put in disciplinary segregation, administrative segregation. They use all of these different terms. They all mean the same thing. That's what solitary confinement is. It's excessive isolation over a long period of time without any you know, meaningful large muscle exercise, access to, to sunlight outdoors. That is what we deem solitary confinement. It used to be up until the last director, James Zarenda, that uh, at the Ely State Prison, 
people with mental health conditions were placed in solitary. And the majority of those people were set for release at a certain time. So you, we had people in the DOC who lived their entire sentence, basically, in an isolation cell, no programming, no family visitation, nothing. So what happened when they went out on the street? Take a guess, Connor. Right. Probably ended up back or definitely didn't end up living their best life when they got out, right? That is absolutely correct. All sorts of uh, so, sorts of paths. A lot of people making their way back into the prison system, dying, unable to take care of themselves back in mental health um, institutions. So it was a nightmare and it caused you know us to do our own investigation and the Vera Institute for Justice to come out and overhaul the use of solitary. And we have a bill, again, we had a bill that passed in 2019 that we were incredibly proud of, but there wasn't an oversight component of it. And so Senator Patricia Spearman, she's sponsoring a bill for us that provides that oversight and also requires the Nevada Department of Corrections to move even further and adopt recommendations from the Vera Institute. I wanted to ask you about the the racial aspect and the disparities there too, because I know there's disparate sentencing sometimes based on the color of your skin, you might get a longer sentence. So all of these negative effects of a prison system that's not actually serving to get people rehabilitated also tend to, I assume, continue to affect minority communities even after people have served their sentences. Can you talk a little bit about the the racial component and kind of the disparities in sentencing and and how those kind of spread out to affect the community at large? I think that, you know, let's first look at uh, death row. I think death row gives us a really stark sort of example of the disparities that exist throughout the criminal justice system. Black Nevadans represent 9% of our population, but they are 43% of inmates on death row. That's huge. So that means that when a case is filed, I mean, and that that trend follows all the way down to even bringing a capital case against someone for first degree murder. So I mean, we're talking about a bias that resonates from, you know, the time a person has charges brought against them to the time that they are, you know, actually put on death row. So that is a policy that our state really needs to consider when we're talking about who makes their way to the biggest imposition, having the state take your life away, who makes their way to that circumstance? And it ends up being black Nevadans. But when we look down at the remainder of the justice system and we look at maybe a microcosm example of a community that is primarily white. So let's look at Douglas County. Douglas County Sure, when you look at trends, they incarcerate more white people. But when you look at, you know, the disparities, a person who is black or Native American or Latino, they are 3.5 times more likely to be cited for marijuana possession than a white person in that county. So it's really only in that county, only black or brown people who are being cited for these different possession crimes. So it's just stark and very blatant, very blatant how we a racially profile when we're looking at traffic stops and we're looking at those initial stops, which are the gateway to entering the criminal justice system. What does that look like on the basis of race? Overall, the prison population, again, here in Nevada, again, it's 9%. Black people represent 9% of state residents but they're 31% of the total prison population. So the disparities are, are, are blatant, you know, and, and we're not, it's, it, we, we have to take time and we can do all the racial bias training in the world, but it's going to take a complete systemic shift in order for people to understand that we need to stop over-policing black and brown communities and start in, Vesting in nurturing black and brown communities, not over policing black and brown communities and doing something completely different. Yeah, you brought up drugs and, and marijuana is legal in Nevada now, but we have obviously decades of precedent of it being illegal and 
that disproportionately affected communities of color. So now that we have had legal marijuana in Nevada for a couple of years, is there anything that is happening to correct for all of the, you know, excessive incarceration? Obviously there's some dispensaries that are making a ton of money and they're paying taxes and they're mostly owned by white business people. Is there anything that's happening to correct for the, especially the drug sentencing and the issues that criminalization of marijuana has caused, not just putting people in jail, but how that putting people in jail has spiraled out and affected entire communities and neighborhoods. What's going on to to fix that? Anything? Yeah, there's a few things in the works. There's definitely industry focus that um, you should absolutely have some some folks who work in the industry come on your show. But there's a push to increase the number of black businesses who are applying for dispensary licenses. And there's also an audit that I believe was conducted that showed that white people were far more likely to receive a license for dispensary and sale of legal marijuana than black persons. And so there's efforts to change that here in Nevada. I do want to point out quickly though, that even with the legalization of marijuana in Nevada, when it comes to those status offenses, those under 18 year olds or under 21 year olds, that, that disparity still exists. It's still three to five. So you're still 3.5 times more likely if you are a black young person to be cited for, for marijuana in certain counties in the state. So it's, it's, it hasn't been like the, you know, magic eraser that fixed everything. Now we have been working on, and it's been an uphill battle. And one of the reasons that we waited so long to endorse the initiative that provided for the regulation of marijuana in the state of Nevada, it took us a while because it didn't have a component that addressed this issue that you and I are talking about that addressed convictions. I mean, there were people who were still serving time in prison on conviction of you know possession offenses and for sale offenses that are now legal in the state. So how do we work to address that? Last year, we had a bill that we worked on with now Commissioner William McCurdy that provided for a streamlined record stealing process, but it's a process that no one knows about. Like it's really incredibly tough to go back and um, because of the kind of archaic way that we keep records in the state of Nevada, we're really behind the times. We really need to modernize our criminal justice systems to make things easier. But right now it still requires a person to go and apply for a record ceiling. And what would be necessary is a pardon. So there's another bill that's going to create a pardon system and hopefully we'll have have a way to do a mass pardon and a mass automatic record ceiling for people who had those convictions in the past. I think that I heard about this. So it basically bypasses the the governor's pardon, right? And it creates a commission or or some group that can can issue pardons. Is that how how that works? Sort of. It's the the big missing factor with the governor's pardon is that it didn't address the record sealing process. So sure people could have that pardon, but how do we find individuals and then how do we more importantly seal the record? So we can so you can have a clean slate and a person can, you know, write on their job application that they haven't had and um, been convicted of an offense, a felony offense. And it's, it comes down to that record sealing process. So we have to have some changes in the law that provide that when pardoned, you get an automatic record sealing and then help jumpstart that process so we can make the system slightly more automatic. We're not going to be able to make it completely automatic unless we get, you know, millions of dollars in the state to update all of these systems. But that's something that we continue to come back and work on session after session and hope that we can can find some solutions at the county level as well. Is there any real reason that it shouldn't be mostly automatic for people to have their incarceration records sealed as a just like a matter of course when you get out. Obviously, there's these moves to stop employers from asking on applications. Do you think that in general, sealing these records should be kind of just a matter of course for most people? Uh, I do. I do think it should, that the system should be that way. We've had some reduction in time that after a certain number of years, depending on the level of offense, a person can apply to have their records sealed unless it's a violent category A or category B felony. 
So, but I mean, I think that that, that needs to change. I mean, at what point are we going to say, okay, you can move forward in your life. And I think you and I both have no folks who are impacted by this, you know, very personally and can't apply for a real estate license. You can't apply to be, you know, I think a nail technician, there's, you know, different limitations on what you can do. So how can we say that a person can fully move forward with their lives if we're not allowing that time to steal records? And I think that's part of the reason that the public policy of the state is to kind of postpone to kind of like, oh, let's see how they do. Let's see how they do over a course of time. And then if they don't get into any trouble for however many years, then they can have their records sealed. But I think we really need to reevaluate that because your ability to get a job, your ability to engage with, you know, your family is directly related to your success outside of prison. Yeah, it seems kind of unfair to say, okay, you're out of prison now and you can seal your record in a few years. But in the meantime, you can't get a job. You can't get this license. We're going to make it extra hard for you, even though you've already served your time. Seems like an unnecessary and really unfair hurdle to put people through after they've already served their sentence and should be able to, you know, do everything that everyone else does. Yeah, exactly. I'd like to go back to the death penalty. We brought up the death penalty And I know there's a movement to get rid of the death penalty in Nevada. In general, as a country, we've really moved away from the death penalty, I think, in public opinion in recent decades. I think we used to kill people all of the time. It was pretty common to utilize the death penalty. And in recent years or decades, I feel like that's gone down. I know at the end of the Trump administration, there was this kind of wave of executions that I think has brought the issue back to the forefront. But in general, where do you see public opinion around the death penalty? And what is the ACLU's view? And what do you think the path forward is regarding the death penalty, especially in Nevada, but in general as well? I hope that in my lifetime, we see the abolition of the death penalty nationwide. And I think it's going to be through states that pass bills abolishing capital punishment and then also ending it at the federal level through some type of executive action. So I'm hopeful that there will be an end to this archaic, this draconian practice that has no business. It should should not be the policy of the state, of the government to kill people, whether that be police, whether that be our systems of incarceration. That's not what the system of incarceration and corrections is intended for. I'm feeling hopeful about this bill. There's a poll that just came out that was commissioned by the Nevada Coalition Against the Death Penalty that shows that hearts and minds in Nevada are changing. When you ask the question, do you support the death penalty? It's an up or down question. Most people will say, well, okay, sure. You know, as a, you know, eye for an eye, most people will say that. But when you ask the question in a different way, you know, do you prefer something other than the death penalty in first degree murder cases, you see those numbers tend to shift. So right now, as it stands, 53% of Nevadans prefer a sentence other than capital punishment for first degree murder. But then when you start to talk about and educate people about the issue, you start talking about things like innocence, the fact that we have killed 181 innocent people in the United States. When you start talking about the cost of the death penalty here in Nevada, that it costs anywhere from 730 to $1 million per capital punishment per case. There's 83 people on death row. Then that starts to change minds. And then you just talk about, you know, how the system is broken generally people start to understand that this is just something that we don't need and we shouldn't do in Nevada anymore. And and the numbers start to look more like 58% of Nevadans who are in support of either life without parole or life with parole. Minds are changing and, you know, they need to change. We need to get public opinion behind this. And for the first time, you know, we, we do see a path to abolition in the state of Nevada. We have a governor who has said on the record that he is morally opposed to the death penalty. So it's just a matter of getting a bill in his desk. That's something that we're really pushing for and hope to move forward with this session and, you know, you know, keep an eye out for a hearing soon in the assembly. That's good to hear. How much of the support of the death penalty from people that do support it, do you think comes from this stigmatization of people who have committed crimes and this kind of dehumanization. I feel like if you were to, you know, make someone 
meet a person who's on death row or make someone hear the story of a real live person who is potentially going to be killed by the state, that might change their opinion a little bit. But most people, like you said, have this kind of general, oh, you know, eye for an eye, they probably deserve it attitude. Do you think that part of getting rid of the death penalty and reforming systems of incarceration in general, does a lot of that come down to helping people understand that people who have committed crimes are people just like us and that it's a lot harder to advocate for someone being put to death if you see them as a real live human being? I think that's an excellent way to put it. And I think let's get, let's zero in on what we're, you know, really talking about here. We're talking about politics, right? We're talking about the truth is, you know, public opinion shouldn't matter because we should just do what's right and humane for people. But there's politics behind this. The people who can make these changes, they have to get elected to office. We have been working on this since we became an organization since 1966, the death penalty and, you know, reimagining corrections, reimagining policing, you know, thinking of a different concept that actually truly is focused on corrections, rehabilitation and reentry rather than the system of punishment. You're reviewing it as something incredibly different than what it actually is today. And that has not until recently become a popular message. One of our founding board members, Rich Siegel, he passed away this past December. You know, in preparing for his memorial service, I, you know, listened to one of his last speeches when he received an award from the ACLU of Nevada, one of many awards that he received from us. And one thing that sticks with me, he starts talking about, you know, the early 2000s and how difficult lobbying for criminal justice reform was and what evil people we looked like because, you know, appeared to be and we were um, out there advocating for for people who commit pretty heinous acts. You know, that's what we do sometimes as an organization. And this really kind of tough on crime era and how difficult it was to really pass anything because it wasn't politically safe. No one, no one wanted to be labeled soft on crime in any way, shape or form, even though people knew, clearly knew that they were placing votes that were going to cost the prison system millions of dollars over time because it was just going to balloon our prison population. So that's what we're dealing with here. And, you know, over time through, yes, those fiscal arguments, but also helping people to reimagine what law enforcement looks like, what the prison system looks like, we've slowly gone in a different direction to try to address, you know, of course it has to become a crisis before people start to see it a different way. We were at a point until this past session or until, excuse, excuse me, the 2019 session where the state was considering whether they needed to build a new facility in order to house everyone when really that was the wrong decision. The decision is to decarcerate, to not incarcerate people for nonviolent offenses, to take a very different approach. The death penalty very much is one of those political issues. And that's what we hear. I'll be very honest. That is what we hear over and over again. There are plenty of people in the Nevada legislature who are morally opposed to the death penalty and not just morally opposed, practically opposed to it because they know it's costing us too much money and it isn't working. But will this kill their chances of being reelected? And I think the the interesting thing that we found in that polling is that no, it won't. Nobody really. Yes, people might have a moral opposition, but it's not going to impact their decision. Your position on the death penalty isn't going to um dramatically impact whether or not a person is going to vote for you. But I, you know, it's, it's disturbing that we have to even talk about it in those terms when we should just be willing to do the right thing. Yeah. It's unfortunate that there's a political calculation associated with something that should be a moral and kind of logical financial type of decision-making without having this, Oh no, am I going to lose my job if I do the right thing or if I vote, the way that actually makes the most sense. It's it's unfortunate that is part of the the calculus that goes into these things. I wanted to ask you a little bit about rights of people who are incarcerated. We talked a little around voting. I am generally, I think I'm kind of maybe not completely alone in this, but I don't think that anyone should lose the right to vote pretty much no matter what. Just because you've committed a crime, I don't care what crime it is, there's this 
kind of talking point of, oh, progressives want to let murderers vote and let all these bad people vote. I think that I'm not worried about someone incarcerated having the right to vote. That doesn't that doesn't affect outcomes, in my opinion. I don't think that the prisoners are going to band together and vote for someone who's going to help them out. I don't think that's a realistic view of of the issue. I think the denial of the right to vote for people that are incarcerated just seems to be kind of a symbolic slap in the face of, oh, you're not a real citizen. You're not you're not equal to the people that are on the outside anymore. So what is the the current status? I know people who are not currently incarcerated in Nevada can vote. Is there any movement? I don't think that there is, but is there any movement in this country to actually let people who are incarcerated vote? Why is the prison not a polling location? I I love this question. And yes, there is a movement. There is a movement for the entire country to operate like Maine and Vermont. Currently in the states of Maine and Vermont, it does not matter. You never lose your right to vote because it has nothing to do with our system of crime and punishment really at all. It's completely, you know, separate from the purposes of incarceration and and, um, corrections purposes and rehabilitative purposes of incarceration. And I think it all goes back again to the 13th Amendment. It it is meant to enslave people. Our system of incarceration is currently, as created, meant to enslave people. And one of those, and it was deliberately uh, meant, like the right to vote is such an important component of that, is to take any kind of power away from black and brown people, even though, you know, white people get swept up in this, it was about taking any kind of those rights to continue to enslave people who had just recently been freed. So I always remember that when we're talking about those issues. There is a movement, the Sentencing Project and a few other different national organizations are really pushing for voting rights, you know, behind, you know, within, um, the NDOC and within or any Department of Corrections and um, federal prisons, but we're not gaining a whole lot of traction for that here in Nevada. And, you know, I wish that we would, but I think, you know, we've, we've had, we expanded the right to vote to 86,000 people with that change in the past legislative session. But I think that's something that we'll continue talking about and hope that we can change in the future. But I will say that another interesting Part of this is people who are in pretrial detention, people who are in jails, who are incarcerated at the time the election cycle comes around, they should be permitted to vote. I mean, constitutionally, those individuals, they have not been convicted of an offense. And so there is a constitutional obligation for local jails to allow people to vote. And we discovered that they hadn't been. So the Mass Liberation Project, they launched a pilot program in, you know, in the last election cycle to help people get some absentee ballots while they were awaiting a decision and awaiting trial. So uh, we're always looking at opportunities to expand the right to vote and opportunities to help individuals participate in society and maintain, you know, their connection to their communities. And what about freedom of speech in prison? That's another thing that I kind of wonder about, because I think part of the the reason that most people don't necessarily identify with or understand or sympathize with people who are incarcerated is that we don't really hear from them. There's no voice from the people that are incarcerated because they don't have access to the media. They don't have access to the internet. They don't have access to social media. They don't have really that many ways to get their stories out and for people to identify with and understand them. So is that part of the system too? Like is basically when you commit a crime, it seems like your first amendment right goes right out the window. You don't really have a voice anymore. Is that something that, that the ACLU is concerned about or something that you've heard much about? Cause I don't really hear that as a topic of conversation, but the isolation from the rest of the society to my view, shouldn't be the point of incarceration. If if your focus is, oh, we want to worry about the public safety and people who are dangerous should not have access to cause harm in society, I don't necessarily see why taking their voice away helps that cause in any significant way. But it does seem to be kind of the default status is you don't just go to jail, you also go to jail and have no access to to be heard by anyone outside of outside of your cell, basically. 
what do you think of that situation? Is that anything that the ACLU is working on or something that you, that you've heard about? Cause I don't feel like it's discussed very often. I, yeah, I, it isn't. And we're doing a lot more direct, you know, services for people who are incarcerated through one of our community partners. They're called return strong. They're a group of family members of incarcerated Nevadans, incredible group. There's been so much grassroots advocacy with people speaking on behalf of their incarcerated loved one. They're showing up to committee meetings. They're showing up to any kind of meeting where the Department of Corrections is maybe presenting so they can talk about things. I mean, they really blossomed and developed during the COVID-19 pandemic because they weren't getting access to their family members during that time. People weren't even able to talk to their lawyers while they were incarcerated without it being incredibly difficult during this pandemic. And we still can't. We're still having trouble getting in for those meetings. So it's it's always been an issue. I mean, what, what the Supreme Court says, you know, every right while incarcerated, it's it's curbed in some way. So what the Supreme Court has said is that, you know, you can't have a blanket prohibition on the, for the right of um, incarcerated people to speak. So you have to provide access to mail, different communications. If individuals want to create, I mean, they have a right to create, you know, a, a prison newspaper, but they can limit the um, the content because, I mean, you are incarcerated at that point. They, so there's a lot of restrictions on speech in that setting. And so those rights are, are quite limited. But I have the pleasure of serving as the inmate advocate. I was appointed by um, Governor Sandoval when he was you know, in charge and then now Governor Sisolak as the inmate advocate on the Nevada Sentencing Commission and previously on the Advisory Commission on the Administration of Justice. So it's quite literally my job to be the voice of incarcerated people. So another part of, you know, the speech that that folks who are incarcerated are, are entitled to is is to communicate with organizations like mine. So I receive a lot of communication from people who are currently incarcerated. And what we do with that information is try to track trends. A lot of the times we're hearing from hundreds of incarcerated people and they're experiencing the same issue. That's how we found out about the abuses that were happening in um, solitary confinement in the prison system. We play a crucial role here in Nevada in helping be that voice for people when they quite literally don't have one, or if they do, it's very limited. There's this idea of defunding the police and, and like you mentioned, a prison abolition and these ideas of limiting the way that we do policing and incarceration that I think really people don't fully understand and that really kind of set people off this idea of if we change everything, then who's going to protect us and what's going to happen to the criminals. And it's going to be the downfall of society. And I don't think that anyone is advocating for getting rid of a criminal justice system. You know, we're a society, we need to manage issues like crime. So in your view, what is the, what would a good policing and corrections system look like? What's the actual goal? I mean, there are people who are saying, oh, they just want to let everyone out and they don't want to care about crime. I know that's not the reality. So what is, what is the reality? What's the goal? If you could, you know, design it from the ground up, what should, what should policing and corrections look like? Speaking more as an individual who's embraced the concept of abolition, more so than as, as a representative of the ACLU, let me just give that quick disclaimer. But what abolition means, it doesn't mean abolition tomorrow. It doesn't mean we're going to, you know, completely change this thing and turn it over on its head tomorrow. But it also doesn't mean anything extremely incremental. But one of those first steps of that is to take a very deep dive into the way that we fund leasing, incarceration, the entire criminal justice system, and determine whether or not we're investing in the right place. We know through data, through sociological studies, through psychological studies, that criminality begins at a very young age and that it's due to a variety of circumstances that are present in a different community and that the gateway to making your way to the criminal justice system is through police. That's the the first contact. And over-policed communities, you're going to find, which are primarily black and brown communities, you're going to find repeat criminal activity because we have decided to invest in that rather than in schools. 
rather than in prenatal care. The connection between prenatal care and a healthy birth and criminalization is staggering. So if we invest in black and brown mothers and, you know, hospital care, nurturing a community, more parks, better educational programming, and start focusing on the front end rather than on policing and why we need that type of system in the first place, you know, adequate mental health services, you know, and if we flip it and invest in that way, then we're going to have better outcomes for community safety and better outcomes for communities who are over-policed. What else do you want people to know about the ACLU or criminal justice or policing? Um, what are the other important issues? Did I miss anything that's that's vital that you're working on? I mean, those are the, the big things. We're always doing something. I'm always, you know, so busy. We work on the entire Bill of Rights and, you know, we're quite a small affiliate. So we're you know, always working on voting rights issues, prison reform issues, women's health care. But, you know, I think right now, you know, the moment is really calling for us to focus on the criminal justice system and focus on these different structures. And I think we'll realize that a lot of these things, they all intersect. Everything is intersectional. And it does come down to, you know, the way that we invest dollars and we invest money. So if we're going to to change the way that we approach civil rights and justice in the the United States, we have to rethink how we fund the most important programs in our country. Have you been encouraged in recent years by this kind of shift away from tough on crime legislation? I know like the, the crime bill from the 90s was hugely popular at the time and it was like Bill Clinton's path to, to being successful. But now we look back and like all of the Democratic candidates who had anything to say about the crime bill were like, oh my God, that was the worst thing we could have done. That was a, it was a major hurdle for Biden, honestly, having been a part of creating it, now having to walk back and say, oh no, 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 that one was a big mistake. So is it encouraging that that's become kind of the national narrative of we got it wrong and now we have to do things better. Is that, is that encouraging? It is. It's, it's encouraging and it's a marker of the work that organizations like ours, but really grassroots organizations working with impacted communities and empowering the voice of impacted communities that have shifted that in the right direction and really not being focused on the, the partisan politics of it at all, telling the human story of how we got into this mess has been what has moved us in this direction. I would be remiss not to mention, though, that there is a faction in this law enforcement, police unions especially, who are desperate to move that narrative back to where it was before because they know that they're losing power and that they're losing that authority because they're just not on the right side of this issue. And so they're investing a lot of money, again, politically into, you know, destroying candidates. You know, I think our majority leader, thankfully, you know, survived this, you know, past legislative session very narrowly because there was a completely disingenuous campaign launched against Majority Leader Canizaro, you know, her being anti-police, which couldn't be farther from the truth. So they're willing to really go after anybody, even their, you know, strongest allies who happen to want to take a, a reasoned position on criminal justice and policing reform. So, I mean, they're, they're really out for blood. I think it's, it's our job to ensure that we continue to be right on this side of the issue and that we expose how wrong they are. That makes sense. I mean, I think a lot of this always comes down to trying to gain or maintain power, whether it's as a political party or as a union or as a, Uh, Even as a business, there are private prisons who obviously are very invested in a kind of tough on crime, a lot of incarceration approach. So I think you're right. And the key is getting past the kind of the power dynamics and the the seeking to maintain the status quo for the sake of maintaining power and looking at a bigger level of what do we want to do as a society regardless of who maintains power, like how do we make it just more fair for everyone? Is that the the goal at the end of the day? It is. It absolutely is. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for, for taking some time to talk to me today. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Of course. It was my pleasure. would love to do it again in the future. 
Awesome. Yeah, there's so much to talk about. I think that's one of the challenges with this podcast is I want to have long conversations and kind of get into the details. And then what I run into is I have guests where I want to talk about so much more with them. There's obviously just the the surface of what the ACLU does and just the surface of of civil rights and civil liberties discussion. So yeah, hopefully we can have you on the podcast again and who knows, talk about voting next time, talk about LGBTQ issues. There's all kinds of things the ACLU is doing that I would love to hear more about. Absolutely. Yay, Connor. So great to see you. Listeners, thank you again for tuning in for this week's episode of Reno Whites, and thank you very much to Holly Wellborn for being our guest. If you haven't had a chance to subscribe on your podcast app of choice, now's a good time to do that. Hit that subscribe button so that you will be able to catch the latest episodes. And while you're at it, follow us on social media. I am on Facebook and Instagram. Happy to see our responses and interactions on there. I always reply to comments. So if you want to stay in touch, find me on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Renoites, and hopefully I will hear from you soon. That's all I got for you this week. See you next time.